Welcome to Tin Pod Radio. In your opinion, what do you think the big thing we could do with seasonal would be? I've been thinking about that a lot. I think part of it would be what's the best way to take advantage of seasonal stuff for people in parts of the country where maybe it's harder for family. Like, I guess I mean people that maybe have a harder time accessing really diverse year-round farmers markets because i know i'm spoiled rotten in sacramento we have multiple year-round farmers markets there are a lot there's a lot of commercial ag in california don't get me wrong there's a ton of it but there's also a lot of small farms and family farms and people who show up at the farmers market and they're kind of doing like microgreens you know they're doing their own grows and stuff and I know there's people in other parts of the country where it's like, okay, well, we have a farmer's market and that's great, but it's only open like four months. And I feel like there's got to be some way to support people in those situations in a way that won't break their budget, but will still allow them to produce high quality calories for themselves. What a strange thing to find, little in this. Absolute. Worst case scenario, you are in an apartment, you have no windows that get good light, you can't grow any, you don't have a patio, nothing. What can you do? And it was like, well, you can sprout stuff in jars and it still has a very high nutritional content and it's really easy and you don't need any soil and it's very relatively low cost, you know? Yeah, we did uh, some sprouts for just salads out of those little uh, kits you can buy. Yeah. And we tried those, and they work good. Yeah, and if you get, like, three or four of them lined up, you can get a week's, like, you just get a production going, you know, in a very, very small amount of space. And I just feel like there's probably other things like that that people can do, like, maybe doing food, like, if someone's got a tree with, you know, like, kind of what happens already, where if someone's got a tree with a ton of persimmons or something, they'll... There's different websites they can put it up at to just trade with other people who don't have any of that in their area. But again, it's, it comes back to like, what do you do? Though, I don't know. I suppose I think there is a lot the average person could do because there are plenty of winter crops that can put up with a certain amount of freezing temperatures. Just I, there's a gap in my knowledge, and I'm trying to fill it. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Like, uh, one thing I did at work recently is I just put, like, a chart up, and I, I, I do it every month where I, because where I work in school, and it just says, like, the, the seasonal stuff that grows this month. And, of course, some stuff grows, you know, multiple months, and, and, like, together but i try to put something unique up so they'll know and then the kids ask me is like they've asked me before why is that important i'm like well if you have you can't buy stuff shipped in from say argentina where i think most of our strawberries were coming from for a long time uh then you know that this stuff is what you grow and that's the way everybody used to eat you didn't you couldn't go and eat the same foods all the time like so that's one of the things I've been trying to do and also educate myself, like, what is truly seasonal foods? Because in a, in the connected world economy, I don't think we understand what seasonal foods are for the most part. Not Cause anymore. We, yeah, because we think we can get anything at any time, which is just yeah, – like, 
I've been reading for a long time how fragile coffee production is. Like people can get, people take coffee really for granted. That can get cut off by global warming real fast. Yeah, I, I even seen something recently where it was talking about wine is tasting different in a lot of vineyards because the weather is changing. We actually had that situation out here because of the wildfires. That whole season's crop of wine tasted like smoke. Mm. So and yeah, I can see I, that too because like the the areas around here that have historically been good for wine production are kind of you know grape growing are starting to kind of shift north. Yeah, like I and it's not like like I've had people at work at say like why are you interested in a lot of this? And I was like, cause it's, it's like a connectivity. Like there's a lot of great reasons why it's great that we're more connected today with like stuff shipping around the world. That's great. But you, you can't totally forget that the fact that that stuff can end, <laughs> you know, and not just with like pandemics, like you were talking about the thing in Texas, like that's why you need good infrastructure because that type of stuff can happen and it can like just happen really quickly and it's probably going to happen there again this year from what i've seen so like people need to it's not a doomsday thing it's not a survivalist thing it's like we need to re-educate ourselves to the fact that seasonal eating is just smarter it's better there's a reason why certain fruits taste better in certain times of the year you might be getting them at other times but they taste different getting out of that is one good thing because my husband and I have been trying to mostly eat seasonally for a long time. And again, I'll admit we are spoiled rotten here. But once you've been eating seasonally for a while, you're like, I'm not eating. I'm not even going to bother with a tomato that's out of season because they're gross. It's like they taste nasty. They don't taste like tomatoes. They're not worth it. Just switch to something that is in season. It'll taste 10 times better. Yeah, I've told people about that because I, like, I keep going back to strawberries, but it's a big thing. I'm like... They're like, well, you say the strawberries are bad, but you keep being able to make stuff. And I was like, yeah, but I have to buy like four pallets of strawberries off season to make, let's say, smoothies enough that one pallet should make. Because you're going to have them smaller. You're going to have a lot more of them bad. It's economically really bad. Yeah, and the flavor usually isn't as good. They're not as sweet. No, they're not. Uh, And that's another thing I, I... don't think people get is like the taste of foods and stuff like that when it comes to seasonal foods they don't get that your strawberries aren't you've probably never tasted one it's great like like i ain't talking about you but i'm talking about like a lot of people i talk to is like and they're like what do you mean i was like because we're getting them all year round and you're not getting like like even the stuff it's overgrown like left on the vines too long that changes taste from it yeah and I, I, I've been trying, like, I guess it's because I work in a school. Like, I've been trying to look up ways of letting the kids know because they want me to come up with programs, too, for the kids to talk to them about stuff like that. And seasonal ones is one of the biggest ones. They don't get the fact that even restaurants used to have not have set menus. They would have seasonal menus because stuff was certain seasons. <laughs> yeah, like, I read your you know that you really shouldn't be eating like oysters outside of the colder months because it's a higher likelihood that a they won't taste as good and b they might have some bad bacteria in them and i'm a yeah i'm a lot more hesitant about eating seafood period right now i don't blame you i mean i'm pretty close to the ocean i feel okay about it but yeah with 
some, like you're saying, like with some of the supply chain issues, it makes you wonder how long some of that stuff's been in transit. Yeah. Um, and I you, can, oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to ask, uh, what would you think would be the, the, the number one thing you would, like, let's say you wanted to tell a kid, like, what would be the number one thing you would want to click in their head when it comes to seasonal food? I think I would encourage them to try to get involved by, even if they just have, I think, no, I know. I think what would be a really interesting challenge, right, Mm -hmm. is to have a kid maybe have like a little container garden where I'm not talking like some huge project, but maybe something where they can grow two or three different types of things at any one time and try to keep something always happening in there all year long and see what happens because inevitably you end up, you're not going to be able to grow the same things all year long. You're going to have to switch to crops that are appropriate for that time of year. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really good point to make. Like, I just let them know those changes. Like even like, uh, I was watching the videos from the one YouTube me and you were talking about not too long ago online. Um, the self-sufficiency yeah, uh, creator. Yes. Sufficient me. I think that's his name. He's Australian. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at one of his uh, videos the other day and he brought up something that I don't think clicks with a lot of people because it was something I didn't learn until fairly recently is like when you're growing and you, if you put like five seeds, if they start to grow, you can't just let those five seeds grow in a pot that you got to trim some of that out a lot of times yeah. or it'll choke everything off. And I think like a lot of people don't understand those basic things like that or reseeding when it comes to stuff, when it falls out of season. I think that was, that's a very important thing that kids could learn from what you're talking about. If they're doing these little groups and then they change them, they could learn those cycles a lot better. Yeah. And again, I think, I think you're a hundred percent right. And I think it's part of like a knowledge gap that we've had because before, you know, during like world war two, what did they have people doing all over the country? You had a victory garden, right? That was the whole idea with that stuff was being sent overseas to troops. You couldn't get things like coffee. So people would go out and dig up chicory root and use that as a coffee substitute. And it was a big, you know, you're a patriot because you're growing part of your own food. And then world war two ended and we had, a country that didn't have its infrastructure bombed into the ground. So we became very successful very quickly. And a big sign of that affluence was being able to go to the supermarket and just buy everything that you needed from there. And I feel like a lot of knowledge about gardening started to disappear. Not as fast because like my grandparents, people that generation were still around doing all this stuff. But then they died and, you know, we're getting, I I think I'd read that the hippie movement in like the seventies was kind of fighting back about that a little bit. Like there was more interest and you can tell going through a lot of the books at that time, there was more interest in home crafts and weaving and growing things. And it didn't last too long because then the eighties came and smacked that right back down. And now we're further and further away from those generations that had a lot of more advanced gardening knowledge. And I've noticed there are a lot of young people who are really, really interested and they want to learn how to do it. They just, they don't know. And they're afraid of failure, I think a lot of times too. And I think they just need a lot of encouragement and 
to understand that if they make a mistake and lose a crop or something that just happens, you know, you have to just be able to get up and dust yourself off and try again. It's not a permanent failure. There's like, I, I'm, I guess I'm saying, I think we're in a situation where there's a lot of people who are set up with a steep learning curve because of all this stuff falling out of practice in such a large segment of our society. Yeah, I agree. Like, it's like one of the things I've learned, even though I grew up around people having small, at least small gardens beside their house all the time. Like, my family were poor, but we didn't go without meals, but we, we still had gardens, like, to supplement stuff. And, uh, but I think, like, they, it, it is a basic knowledge thing, and I do think kids are open to learning about it. But they also, people have to be open to the failure about it. As you know, and I know from the small stuff I've done, you're going to fail a lot when you oh, first start doing stuff. <laughs> I am really grateful that when it comes to my animals, I have a very, very high success rate because I'm super paranoid. Like last year when the pandemic started, okay, so I didn't originally want chickens, but my neighbors are um, Moldovan immigrants and they have very kind of similar attitudes to what I grew up with where it's like you're that sense of providing for yourself so they got chickens and a couple of their chickens hopped the fence and decided to live in my yard because it's like a chicken paradise <laughs> back there and I asked if it was okay if we kept them and they said it was fine and the more I learned you know the more interested I got and the more fascinating I found the chickens and I was like you know this is great I take really, really, really good care of them and they lay me eggs and it's just me and my husband. It's not like we need 40 a week. They're, these two birds are more than adequately sur supplying eggs for two people. And I think that also helps to get people to understand these aren't production units, they're animals. It's mm -hmm. like when it's really hot out, no, they're not going to lay as much. When it's really cold and darker, they're not going to lay as much. But you're willing to view them more as animals and not little egg producing robots. So when the pandemic started, I was like, okay, I wanted to raise baby chicks for forever. I'm going to try because we're home all day. I can keep an eye on them. So I went to the store and we have kind of a smaller backyard. We're on a sixth of an acre. I'm trying to do as much efficient management and stuff with it as possible, but I don't want to overload the yard because we try to have the chickens basically have full run of the backyard. And I try to put a lot of enrichment activities and stuff out there to keep them busy. And um, I have like six chickens and that is I feel the maximum size flock I can have in this yard so I was taking the baby chicks really seriously I'm like we're just gonna have two because we have two hens so we'll just have two baby chicks and you know I'm getting them home and they're in the house and I'm coming up with their whole warming setup and everything for them it was kind of driving one of my friends crazy because she's like Lee every time they peep you don't have to go running I'm like yeah I do they are three days old I lose She's like, you know, agriculture, you lose 50%. That's just what happens. It's like, I have two baby chicks. If one of them dies, I have a big problem. So for the animal stuff, the animals are mostly all fine. I take really good care of the animals. But the plants, it's like, oh, God, so many failures with tomatoes. And I tried so hard. I bought all this special corn this year, like all this heirloom variety that I was really excited to grow. And none of it came up. I had one stock that came up and it grew half an ear of corn. And that was with me running around every day for months, shoving corn in the ground all over the place, trying to figure out where it would grow the best. And it's like gardening teaches you humility. You know? 
Yeah, and I think, it, I mean, that goes back to other stuff. Like, like you have to learn. I think our culture in general looks at success being something you can do almost automatically or you're not good at it at all. Yeah, which is terrible, which I totally agree is the message. And it's awful because most people who become like master craftsmen or something work for years to get there and face a ton of failure. Uh, When it comes to like seasonal growing, how often do you change what you're growing? Okay, so here's what I got going here. I decided that I wanted to do a xeriscaped permaculture food forest i can't believe that's all a real thing because i started out <laughs> just the xeriscaping where i have some low water requirement native plants and stuff but after this year i started really focusing in on what i wanted to do so the way i'm viewing it is i have some centerpieces that are native plants that have very low water requirements and are kind of the show like the peacocks of the garden and then i'm surrounding the big centerpieces with native plants that I'm researching that provide food, like more traditional food. So I'm trying to plant a bunch of like salmon berries and thimble berries and different, like I managed to track down a Pacific blackberry vine and I have domesticated berries as well. And I put in all of these apple trees. So basically I've got everything kind of set up on concentric rings. And the closer to the outside of the ring, the more water it requires. So it's on a drip. And the more it produces something you want to access more frequently. So I have a lot of herbs that I want to be able to have available all year long. And then I really want to be able to get into a place where I can have like a higher diversity of more traditional crops that I can experiment with and kind of move in and out. So I guess... I guess what I'm saying is the way I viewed putting this together is I wanted something interesting to always be going on no matter what time of year it is. And I'm trying to keep an open mind. So like I said, I planted a ton of fava beans to kind of help build up the soil and break up the clay that I'm on and be a really easy, flexible food crop. But then I'm also using it to prep the way for native plants I'm going to put in there next year and replace. And then all of these invasives showed up, you know, like narrow leaf plantains. And there's this one out here called fillery. I think it's also called storkweed or something like that. It turns out a lot of this stuff is also edible. And that was one of the reasons that people would keep them, you know, like settlers would keep them around their houses or whatever, is they're really tenacious and they're edible and they taste pretty good. And I was like, man, a lot of this stuff, like you pick it and The narrow leaf plantain kind of tastes like spinach. It has similar nutritional values. It has a lot of iron. And a lot of this other stuff, like the fillery, I just viewed that as a total pest that I would try to pull out every year. And on a whim, I was like, I wonder if it's edible. And I looked it up, and it is. And it kind of tastes like a really mild salad green. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I think, I'm not necessarily saying I think people should feel like they have to go out and just forage around, even though I'm a huge foraging fan, because (laughs) one of my friends is like, no, you just go and put it in your yard. Why are you going to forage? I think it's a cultural thing. Yeah. I'm definitely pro forager side, but I think maybe if we open our minds a little, because a lot of what we view as acceptable food is because it's shelf stable and is in supermarkets because it's shelf stable. Yeah. It's not the only options. And I kind of feel like our diets are getting 
maybe not so much anymore, but I feel like for a long time, our, our diets were getting like more and more pared down where it's like, okay, you can get one lettuce from the store. You can get iceberg lettuce. That's it. And I have seen things improve a lot over my life, you know, where there's a whole bunch of different varieties of stuff at the stores. Now, when you go like even the discount grocery stores around here start carrying, you know, like they acquire local, um, like seasonal crops, like they'll get in, um, persimmons when they're in season, or they'll have some heirloom varieties of tomatoes when they're in season. And even so, I'm like, there's probably just a whole bunch of additional stuff that we overlook in our day-to-day -day lives that's available and out there and requires very little effort to grow because they're literally weeds. So are you looking with your stuff to, to do any kind of preserving or canning process? I really, want, I really want to get to that point. I'm not there yet. My parents totally are. Like I told you, my parents... They have it down to a system. Like we used to go over to their house. Um, the first year they moved out here, my dad planted a few too many tomatoes. He ended up with like 30 eight foot tall plants. And we would be over there every weekend for a month canning them and running them through the food processor and canning all that. But he and my stepmother, like he's got it down to a really good system now. He just, he has his salad crops and all that stuff and peas and whatever time of year is like, the peas go in in the fall and the spring. He has all of his winter vegetables now, which is like the, you know, kale, broccoli. He's growing, I think, some onions and things like that. And then when the season's over, it's time to pull that stuff out, rake everything up and put in the summer crops. Like here, now it's time for the tomatoes and the beans and the peppers and stuff. He's just got a system. Like it's, he's doing some really mm -hmm. intensive, high production home gardening. And I would really like, I canned the first couple of years I was gardening out here where actually the one year I had a good tomato crop, I got a ton of Roma tomatoes and we turned them all into homemade ketchup and it was really good. But I'll admit that stuff does take time and it tends yeah. to all come together at once because everything is in season at the same time. So it's like, okay, now's the month you can tomatoes, but it's not crushing constant work. It's just that one week where the stuff is ready. And I think people can plan against that too, because one of the benefits, if you live somewhere that's warm enough to grow citrus, one of the great benefits of citrus besides the diversity is they're, they're stable on the tree for a really long time. Yeah, one of the things I was telling uh, the kids at work one day when they were asking me about like, growing something at home I even suggested to them like grow one thing that you yeah. eat a lot of like what is your favorite suggestion because like we were saying that's another thing people just try to do too much right out of the gate and I think it's better if you start growing one or two things and really learn about them and get comfortable with them and then add stuff as you go along and you giving them that advice is great because you're setting them up for success yeah, and the system, and I've talked to people like this because I do know about supply chain stuff. This, and I, a lot of people don't understand when I tell them, I'm like, the system is set to create a lot of waste. Like, yeah, like it really like, is. Because, like, even like for the pack, like a little pack of herbs at like a Walmart or any place like that, it costs you four or five dollars depending on where you live. I, if I'm buying for a restaurant. For only like $2 more, I can buy two pounds of that. 
but I don't need two pounds of it. But if I order it, I order. I have to order two pounds of it, so a lot of it will go to waste. And it's the same thing with, like, you go, like you were talking about having a chicken to make a few eggs for you and your husband. Like, you can't go into a lot of places and even buy the small packs of eggs. A lot of times you have to buy the big ones that you probably won't use until they go bad. they'll go bad way before that. Yeah, and that is one thing I really enjoy about home growing is there is no real waste. It's like, okay, so let's say the peaches are in season and you had the worst month ever and you just aren't on top of it and the birds get to them and they're full of bugs or whatever. Who cares? You throw them in the compost, they go back into the ground and become nutrition again. And it's like the same with the chickens. We can always feed them their own eggshells. They think that stuff is amazing. It can all go in the compost. Like you're not getting rid of a ton of packaging and if you have too much it's like you don't have to eat it you don't have to use it just put it back in the ground throw it in your compost heap leave it under the tree you know it's not type of waste as in a commercial environment yeah it's the type of thing i want to do not only at my job but at home is like i had an illness uh, like last year and the year before that so it got us more into not cooking at home as much as we did for a while. Uh, I also want to get at work and at home into when I have extra stuff, like freeze it, you know, use it for even like bananas. That's the big thing I started doing at work, actually, was bananas that I started, you know, freezing more bananas so they won't go bad. And I started using them in other things, making, you know, breads or cakes or anything like that and that's one of my biggest goals right now is is cutting down waste i want to do it at my job i don't have to but they keep telling me i don't have to and i'm like yeah but i would like to (laughs) it's really inspiring that you're trying to do this and i do think it's a great example for the kids the bananas are perfect because you you know you skin them and freeze them they freeze really really well i mean banana ice cream is a thing for a reason and yeah. like you're finding out, they're so flexible, banana bread, all kinds of baked things. It doesn't matter if they're mashed up and frozen. They're fine. Yeah, it's like one of our biggest wastes is fruits. And I, I want to start making jams for the kids. And I think that is like a that. really good introduction. One of my, If you ever want to talk to her, let me know and I'll see what I can do. One of my friends is a master food preserver. Mm-hmm. And like pickles and jams are a great intro to canning especially for kids because they're high acid so the odds of screwing them up and getting botulism are slim to none and you don't need a pressure canner like you do with low acid foods like potatoes and things like that where if you screw them up they get pretty dangerous quick you can Mm -hmm. do everything with a water bath at home yeah it's just one of those things like i where i grew up we like pickled everything like, I never saw to mention something to people, and they're like, look at me weird. I'm like, yeah, we pickled pig's feet. We pickled eggs. We pickled all this stuff. And i like, you know, I kind of want to do that again. Not only do I like some of that stuff, but I'd like to do it to preserve some of that stuff. I think that would be fun for kids, too. Like, my family wasn't big into pickling, but I'm fascinated with it, especially cultures that have a lot of really different, like, variety of pickles, like japanese and korean cuisine where it's just all different kinds of pickles because yeah pickling was one of the main ways of preserving food for a long time across multiple human societies yeah it's just just 
it is a super interesting thing when you look at and this is getting off topic a little bit but when you look at food history and how you can track history with it it's it, even like the local like your area you talked about or where you grew up and stuff and then my area and the differences between them and stuff like that but food's a connector but we need to learn about the foods <laughs> yeah like one of my favorite books is one i swiped from my dad he got it as a textbook for this class that he took it's called um plants and society by estelle Levitin, L-E-V-E-T-I-N, and Karen McMahon. And it was such an eye-opener to read because all these fruits and vegetables where I thought I knew where they had originated from, I was completely wrong. Like, I had no idea that apples originated in China, you know, like citrus originated in China. A huge amount of the stuff we eat originated in the Americas. It's tracking the history of all that stuff I mean, I think a lot of people associated potatoes really heavily with Europe because, you know, the potato fam, everyone hears about the yeah. Irish potato fam, but potatoes are, I'm pretty sure they're from the Andes. I think that's where they originated from. They have like a huge um, number of varietals of potatoes and root crops that are similar to potatoes, but are slightly different. Yeah, the, the difference in, in like... I also do a work a weekly food fact with the kids and which they were super fascinating with because nobody tells them this stuff. So they love some of this stuff like like foods that, that that can be actually a poison if they're not processed right. But you're eating oh, it all the time. I kids being fascinated with that. Like, yeah. um, what is it? Is it taro where the root is poisonous unless you prepare it correctly and then it's fine? Yeah, there's a, quite a few like. Uh, especially, I think, especially like a lot of beans and stuff like that, that if you don't prepare them right, they can be like poisonous. And, and like they're loving those food facts when I give them some of that stuff. But one of the things I'm, I, I find fascinating that they don't know that you talked about apples. They don't understand that there's a lot of different kinds of apples. You know that they don't understand that there's like so many there's different colored carrots i had they're, they're fascinated the fact that all carrots aren't like uh orange like <laughs> i'm like no there's different carrots there's different size carrots like and i've been trying to get them with those things that open them up to seeing like no this didn't originate in this country it's originated in this country like that's where it comes from and or it was where it was first there and I think it's I, I love the fact that they're interested in it. they come up and talk to me all the time and saying like is there actually like uh carrots that aren't this color and I'm like yeah there actually are like you can find them in a lot of salads actually is usually where you see some of them in mixed salad mixes but I think even like my old boss at one of my old jobs we got in an argument one time over sweet potatoes because the company sent me sweet potatoes one time and they didn't send me orange looking sweet potatoes they sent me white ones and she didn't believe that they were actually sweet potatoes and i mean that is funny because i hadn't seen white sweet potatoes until we started going to the farmer's market under out here and there is a lady who specializes in selling yams and sweet potatoes all different varieties and i had no idea there were so many and i think it's super cool when you learn that stuff i mean i mean it might just be one of the few people that thinks it's cool but i just think it's awesome when i learn that stuff you know what might be fun to show the kids is a lot of seed catalogs. They'll send them to you for free, and they have a huge variety of stuff. It's like you want 
some fancy purple carrot. Well, here's 20 different varieties. Yeah. And just I, letting them flip through some of those catalogs and see everything that's available. Cause it blows my mind still. And I've been looking at them for years. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting. Like I said, the kids want to learn that stuff. They find it fascinating because they don't, it's something they're, they're totally blown away with. Like, like I've been getting them a lot with classifications of foods. And, you know, some of those are just culturally we learn certain stuff like what's actually a berry and what's not a berry. And then they, they start asking me and then they start saying, like, those aren't berries we're eating today. And it becomes a joke with them. But they've learned that, oh, yeah, this is actually not considered a official berry. And then I tell them why you need to learn it because you need to learn it for scientific reasons when it comes to growing. Because this yeah. thing you think a berry might not be a berry, so it might grow differently. Yeah. That's a really, really good point. Yeah. So when it comes to, like, uh, seasonal stuff, and I don't know how long you want to talk tonight, but uh, uh, when it comes to seasonal stuff, do you think we are getting really worse about it? Or are we starting to – is this waking us up any to what's going on right now that we might have to start going back to that? I know I'm in a part of the country that – has a lot of ag so it's something that is a big deal out here so i'm saying i know i might have a slanted opinion but based on me being like 45 years old i do think things are improving i think people are especially young people like i was reading that the job most young people are going into is uh, or sorry not the job but like most young people are studying environmental things because they know that's the big challenge we're looking at and i do think there seems to be much much more support for farm to fork movements and farmers markets and the idea of having locally grown seasonal foods be more normalized and i'm not saying i think we're there yet i think a lot of it still is kind of unfortunately aimed at more affluent people mm. but like out here, I'm really, I've been impressed with the farmer's markets out here for a while. They all accept EBT. They try to put them in areas that are accessible if either on car or if you have a bike or have to take public transit because public transit out here really stinks. I feel like a lot of places really are trying. And I think the longer it goes, the more appreciation people get. But um. We just have everything kind of stacked against us because it's yeah. anti-capitalist to do this hippie nonsense. You know? Do you think we're getting almost forced into having to deal with it? I kind of feel like that a little because we can keep screwing around all we want politically and socially, but you can't bicker with science. And we have pushed the ecosystems on this planet really, really far. And it's starting to get to the point where we're not able to, I guess, successfully shield ourselves to shield our current lifestyle forever from those side effects. And I do think the majority of people want to do something to improve it. I do think there's a lot of people who, you know, no pun intended, are really hungry to try to have some sense that what they're doing is helping the situation and producing some of their own food or eating seasonally, like you've been saying, like that is a way people can really directly feel like they're connected to their environment in a positive way instead of a negative way. Uh, I, I would probably 
be amiss not to mention the fact uh, of like uh, food deserts. I don't know if you've read much about that concept. Yeah. And cities and stuff like that, Um, which a lot of people don't understand when I've mentioned it to people I work with and stuff. And I'm like, you don't understand that it could be miles to go before you could hit a place where they could get fresh vegetables, get fresh food and stuff like that. I lived in one, my husband and I lived in one for a little while and we were in Philly and it sucked. Like we didn't have a car. If you, it's like time to go shopping. This is going to take all day on Saturday because we have to get 15 blocks across the other side of the city, go shopping and then haul it all back home because the one closer supermarket is I've like a Whole Foods equivalent. That's way out of our price range. And I think that's the kind of thing where having community gardens in those types of communities makes a humongous difference, but it's such an uphill battle sometimes. Yeah. And that's the thing we, we, we need to take away that it's a privileged thing. Like, like you shouldn't have to be privileged to be able to have a little garden somewhere. Yeah, and stuff. that's really well. And it's the best way for, I don't know, it's just, it gets to something so primal in humans like it's we've been an agricultural species for so long i think we're just kind of geared to find it gratifying Mm -hmm. but yeah we said we make it difficult for people like i've at least in the 50s they built all these suburban homes for white people to go into to do white flight but they had decent sized backyards and the i mean looking around at the type of homes that get built now especially out here they tend to be a larger home on a smaller lot and it's a lot more difficult to grow stuff on a small lot. Like what if the sun isn't at a good angle, depending on how your house is oriented. Mm -hmm. If you're part of an HOA that won't let you utilize any of the land in front of your house, because you just need to have, you know, like a yard, you you need to have a lawn and landscaping that fits the HOA requirements. And I don't, I don't think it's really intentional. I think it's kind of a side effect. But it's like, huh, if I was, you know, big, big into trying to sell every single aspect of people's lives to them and take away their ability to produce their own food, this would sure be a really good way to do it, wouldn't it? Yeah. Buried in the earth alone. We hope you enjoyed this Tin Universe production. Wondering if I'd ever leave the ground. The voice of Tin Universe and is Stacy Taylor. For ebooks, web comics, short films, and more, head over to tinuniverse.blogspot.com. And for a moment, I could fly.